Galatians 5, 13 through 18. Hear the word of the Lord. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is God's Word. Well, that was fun. I know some of you are thinking that you want that survey back so that you can fill it out again. And uh, it's like, you know, I was going to be good with, you know, if we had to do a live stream for one to three more months, you're like, nope, nope, where's the other option? Nope, next week, we, we got to stop this. I'm done. Uh, we feel you. We feel you. Thank you so much for your patience and your grace. And, and seriously, I'm so thankful for, for Josh figuring all this stuff out, like when I got a text from one of you guys saying that, you know, it was it was out and we needed to fix it. And I'm like, whoop, I, I don't know. Going to have to wait till the song's over for Josh to come over here and fix it because I have no idea what to do. So I'm so thankful for him and, and all of his troubleshooting abilities and just for setting this up. Even though it's flawed, we're still thankful to be able to, to meet together in this way. Galatians 5, 13 through 18. I said a couple weeks ago. If, as a church, we get Galatians 5, if, if the Spirit uses it, drives it deep down into our bones, then we will be changed, and our city will see it, and we will impact the city and the nations with the gospel. Galatians 5, really the whole book of Galatians, but Galatians 5 especially. There are so many life-changing truths in this passage. And if you've noticed, if you've been reading Galatians 5 like we've asked, Two words that keep coming back are the one word, spirit, the Holy Spirit, the spirit keeps coming up again and again. And I wanted to ask you at the beginning of our passage this morning, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in your life? What is the role of the spirit? What is the role of the Holy Spirit in our church? If you'd be honest with yourself and with me for just a moment, I'd say that most of us haven't given a conscious thought to the Holy Spirit in a long time. And if we're not careful, it will be easy, easy in this church culture this Southern church culture, it will be so easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that we can accomplish the mission of God without the Spirit of God. It'll be easy for us to think that we can accomplish the mission of God in our lives, in our church, in this world, without the power of God. And how foolish is that? What do we have to offer what do we bring to the table when we think about how we can impact this city for good? When we think about how we can see the gospel make inroads in the city and in the nations, 
when we think about this desire that we have for people who are far from God to come near to God through the blood of Jesus, when we think about wanting to see an explosion of conversions all over our city, what do we have to bring to the table? What strategy can we come up with that could reach lost sinners for God? And it's, it's so tempting and so easy for us to just rely on our strategies, our traditions, our systems in order to bring the gospel to bear on our lives and, and on the city. But if, if we want the gospel to take root in our hearts, in our homes, in Tupelo, and to the ends of the earth, it's going to take more than our puny strategies and our puny resources and our limited wisdom and knowledge and abilities. There's a book I want to recommend to you. If you don't get anything else from this sermon, I hope you remember the title of this book. It's called Keep in Step with the Spirit by J.I. Packer. Keep in Step with the Spirit. In the book, in the preface of the book, he, he uh, closes it with this eyewitness testimony that was written in 1908 by missionaries to China. And I want to read it to you. These missionaries, they, they testified... A power has come into the church that we cannot control if we could. It is a miracle for self-righteous people to go out of their way to confess to sins that no torture could force from him. For a Chinese man to demean himself, to crave, to weeping, for the prayers of his fellow believers is beyond all human explanation. Perhaps you will say it's a sort of religious hysteria. So did some of us. But here we are, about 60 Scottish and Irish Presbyterians of all shades of temperament. Many of us shrank from it at first. But everyone who has seen and heard what we have is certain there is only one explanation. It is God's Spirit manifesting himself. One clause of the Apostles' Creed that lives before us now in all its awesome solemnity is, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So J.I. Packer, he comments on this, and he says, Inevitable, awesome solemnity. Does that phrase fit our present perception of the Holy Spirit and his work? What happened in China in 1908 when the Spirit attacked and overthrew self-righteousness, got down to specifics in people's consciences, and robbed them of all inward rest and quietness till they confessed their sins and changed their ways, may be paralleled from the Acts of the Apostles. But where nothing of this kind happens, Packer says, where we don't see this, nor is it even envisioned, Claims that the Holy Spirit is at work must be judged unreal. The Holy Spirit comes to make us holy by making us know and feel the reality of God through his Son, Jesus Christ. God's hatred of, recoil from, and wrath against our sins, and his loving insistence on changing and rebuilding our characters while he forgives us for Jesus' sake. And Packer closes with this question. Have we even felt these things? That is, have we been stirred and shaken and altered 
by their impact. I don't know about you. I want to see a powerful work of the Spirit in Trace Crossing and in Tupelo. I want to see it. I want to see the gospel take root. If we want to see that, if we want to see our hearts, our homes, and our city transformed by the gospel through a work of the Spirit, we need to ask ourselves right now, am I willing to change? Am I open to the Spirit moving and working in my life? And so over the next couple weeks, as we, as we walk through the rest of Galatians 5, we're going to see that the Christian life is nothing more than life in and by the Spirit. And in our passage this morning, Paul, he, he works off of this theme of Christian freedom. And he says there is a call to Christian freedom, there is conflict that results from Christian freedom, and then there's a command of Christian freedom. And I want to unpack each of those for you this morning as we consider this powerful, unique, awesome solemnity that is the Holy Spirit in our lives. So first, starting in verses 13 through 15, Paul issues this call, this this call. He says in verse 13, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We talked about Christian freedom a couple weeks ago. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has set us free we said two weeks ago, from relating to God on the basis of our obedience. God is not looking at our lives and and hoping that we have obeyed enough so that he can accept us. We don't relate to God that way. We relate to God on the basis of a promise he made that is fulfilled through Jesus, that by his grace alone and the work of Christ alone in our place, we are reconciled to God. And it's not on the basis of our obedience. We receive that as a gift through faith. And and we're also, as we saw a couple weeks ago, we are set free to live as those who both know and feel forgiven, who both know and feel that we belong to the people of God. We are free from a guilty conscience. We are free from self-justification. So we can follow Jesus without fear that he's going to one day leave us behind or that we will stumble in such a way that is so serious that we will never be able to reach him. We learn that God has created a new man in Christ, and he has recreated us in the image of Christ to be these new men and women with a new relationship with God and a new motivation to live for him. So God came to us to set us free to live a full, abundant life on the basis of faith alone in Christ. We are free from the guilt of sin. And that raises a really, really important question that Paul wants to address here. He wants us to see what it means and what it doesn't mean to live a free life in Christ. And now the concern of the false teachers, you can actually see how valid it is. Their concern, and and it could have even been a problem that the Galatian churches were experiencing. The concern is that they would abuse this freedom or that they would misuse this freedom, and that they would just live however they wanted. Because when you think about it, if you're completely free from the guilt of sin, what is there to stop you from sinning? If I know that Jesus has already paid my debt, what's, what's a few more sins? Why not? Why, why would we not? Um, it, it's, it's wrong logic, but it's clear logic. If I'm free from guilt, why not sin? If I'm free from the law, why not live according to my own desires? 
Why can't I just live however I want? Uh, it makes me think of when I was a substitute teacher. I was a substitute teacher for three or four years. And some classes were just a joy. It was so easy. Teachers really prepared. You know, it was not a problem. Some classes, oh boy, it was an utter nightmare. I dreaded it. I dreaded going to school that day knowing that I had to lead that class. And so my only hope for survival for the day was the fear that the students had for punishment. That's all I had. All I had. My class management skills, I mean, I did all I knew how to do, but that was it. But if there were kids that were just rambunctious, they were, they were going wild, I would just threaten them with the punishment. And, you know, they didn't want to go to ISS. They didn't want me to call the principal. They didn't want me to call home. And I always had that to throw at them. And, and so, you know, the concern here is the punishment is gone. The condemnation is gone if you're in Christ. So if you don't have guilt to motivate you to obey God, you're probably going to live however you want to live. That's, that's the concern. Paul is reminding them the call of Christian freedom is a call to a new way of life. It's new. It's completely new. Our relation to God and our relation to to one another, it is brand new. And it is marked by love and service. So so Paul says, no, don't, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead use your freedom to love And through your love, serve one another. We are called to use our freedom for love, not license, where we're just free to do whatever we want to do. Love dies to selfish desires for the express purpose of serving other people and their needs. License, on the other hand, destroys others in service of self. So, so Paul goes on to say in verse 15, you, you know, he said, you need to love one another, you need to serve one another, and in doing so, you fulfill the law. Then he says in verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. If you just live however you want, do whatever you want, you're just serving yourself. And if all we're doing is serving ourselves, we will serve ourselves at the expense of others. So license at the end of the day destroys while love transforms, it builds up. Love expressed in service of others is evidence of freedom in Christ. We are free from self-centeredness, and we are free for others' centeredness. Both our motivation for life and our mission for life has completely changed when, when Jesus set us free. Our motivation, if it was once that we were motivated by the law or we were motivated by guilt, Now we are motivated by grace. Our mission in life, we are no longer going to to extreme lengths to make sure we protect our right to do whatever we want. No, instead, love motivates us to live our lives in service of others. So, and this is crucial too, we don't serve one another because we're trying to earn God's love. We serve one another because God's unmerited, relentless love for us motivates us to give ourselves for each other. We look at how much God has given himself for us and we respond in kind for one another. Those of us who are free in Christ gladly, willingly, eagerly lay down personal preferences, personal desires for the good of others. And if we value 
This is a warning here that Paul's giving. If we value getting our own way more than anything else, then it's not just unwise. We're actually living in bondage to the flesh. The way of freedom is spirit-empowered, sacrificial, other-centered love expressed in service. And on the other hand, license, this, this view of just living however you want, that is expressed in service of self. And that's evidence of slavery to the flesh or our sinful nature. And this is where it's really important. When you live however you want, according to whatever desire is new that day, and your desires are leading you, you feel really free. I'm not doing what God says. I'm not doing what this church has covenanted to say. We're going to live this way. No, I'm not doing that. I'm free. I don't have to follow the rules. Well, no, you're following new rules that your flesh is setting for you. You still have a master. It's just your sinful nature. When we use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh in order to satisfy ourselves at the expense of others, we're really just testifying that we want Jesus to be our Savior in the end, but we don't need a second master. We don't don't need Jesus to be our master. We already have one. So, and this is an important question as we consider this call to freedom. How can we know whether or not we are living in the freedom that Christ has purchased for us? A good starting place. Examine your life and see who you're serving. Who are you serving? Are you serving yourself more than you're serving others? Now, again, we need to be careful Serving others does not merit favor with God. So you can't get to God that way. But if you just want to take your, you know, spiritual temperature, it's a good question to ask. Are you serving yourself more than others? If so, it's evidence that, for whatever reason, you're submitting to the flesh. On the other hand, if you're serving others more than yourself... It could possibly be evidence that you are actually walking on the way of freedom. You are walking in the Spirit. Now, this is why it's really important for us as a church, as a a body, not just as individuals. If we all buy into this, if we all buy into it, that we're going to live as free men and women by loving and serving one another more than we love and serve ourselves, it will create a culture. It will create a culture an attractive culture. So generally speaking, as we've seen through Galatians, we will likely develop one of three kinds of cultures in our church. And it'll seep in, it won't won't be really dramatic, but one of three cultures will exist in our church. The first is a culture of legalism. A culture of legalism. That culture judges and excludes. You gotta accept Jesus, but you also have to be just like us. The second culture is a culture of licentiousness, what Paul's warning about here. That culture destroys, where we are self-seeking, where we, we want to get what's ours, no matter what it costs others. And then the third culture is the culture we should be striving for, striving to build, a culture of love. A culture of love transforms. 
You think that we would not be transformed if everyone bought in to loving one another and expressing that love through service? If we were meeting needs and caring for each other, you think that wouldn't transform the culture of our church? And so that when people come in and they see this body, they see people who are for each other and not at each other's throats. They see a church that is sacrificing what would maybe benefit themselves for the good of someone else. You think that wouldn't transform us? Only one of these cultures will have the imprint and power of the Holy Spirit. The other two grieve the Spirit. And if we want to see a gospel awakening in our church, in our hearts, in our homes, in our city, we need the power and imprint of the Holy Spirit. So let's embrace this call to Christian freedom. This call also comes with conflict. Christian freedom also has conflict. You look at verse 17 with me. In verse 17, Paul writes, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And another important question. If we have been set free by Christ, and if we have indeed received the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we confess this and believe it, and we believe that the Holy Spirit empowers us to walk in freedom, why don't love and service come naturally? Why don't love and service just happen organically if we have been set free by Christ and we have the Holy Spirit, and we all do? Why isn't it just automatic? Why do we have to work for a church culture of freedom and grace and love and service? You know, if we take a step back and we look at our lives as those who have the spirit of the living God indwelling in us, why don't we see only holiness? Why don't we see only love expressed through service? Why do we still see selfishness? Why do we still see legalism and licentiousness? rather than just love. It's because the Christian life is war. The Christian life is war. There is a conflict that is happening within our hearts and within our church that will exist until the return of Christ. There are two sides to this conflict. Paul says, on one side we have the Spirit On the other side, we have the flesh. The Spirit is, as as you could well guess, the God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And by faith in Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit indwells our hearts, as we've said, works to conform us to the image of Christ, to sanctify us, to comfort us, to heal us, and to guide our hearts into godliness. Now, the flesh, on the other hand, is our sinful nature. And every single one of us, deep down, have this same sinful nature. And even though we sin in different ways and we sin to different degrees, our sins all come from the same place, this sinful nature that we are born with. This is the reason that there's conflict because the Spirit indwells a person who is by nature evil. I know you don't want to admit that about yourself this morning. I don't don't like it either. It sounds really strong. But by nature, we are sinful. We are allergic to God and his desires and his ways. And and 
these desires, these God-allergic, sinful, evil desires, they are natural to us. There is natural to us as hunger, and as, as one, one writer said, there is comfortable to us as sleep. And receiving the Spirit doesn't immediately root out the flesh. The Spirit and the flesh battle for real estate in our hearts. And we need to see this, and we need to embrace it. Life in the Spirit, a life of freedom, is a life of inner conflict. And it means two things. This inner conflict means that we are capable of far worse than we want to admit, and we are capable of far better than we could possibly dream. So if you submit to the flesh, there's no telling how much you could mess your life up even as someone who is redeemed and forgiven and restored in Jesus. Now, if you submit to the Spirit, there is no telling how much good, how much hope, how much joy the Spirit could unleash through you. Now, if we no longer experience conflict, because some of you, you, you may be thinking, Man, I don't really see it that way. I don't, that's not really how I experience the Christian life. It doesn't, I don't really feel an inner conflict going on. I, I feel fine. I'm, I'm pretty comfortable. Well, if you no longer experience inner conflict, there are three options for reasons why. The first is that your spiritual journey is complete. That happens at death. So if, if you're not feeling any conflict, you're, you know, one option is that you're dead or Christ has returned. And if you're on the Zoom call right now, tuning in, or if you're in this room, that's not you. Okay, so, so that, that, we can strike that one out. That's not it. If you're not feeling conflict, it's not because you're dead or, or Christ has returned. Those two things aren't true of you right now. All right, a second option. Our spiritual journey never began. Okay, this is the frightening one. That means that you've yet to trust Jesus. That means that you have not received the Spirit. If you're not feeling conflict, it could be that it's just the flesh. There's not going to be conflict if the Spirit is not also indwelling you, and you only have your sinful nature within. So that's the second option. The third option is what's most likely. Our spiritual journey is stalled. Because we are only giving in to the flesh. We are only submitting to the flesh. We are grieving the Holy Spirit. And that doesn't mean that you have lost your salvation. That doesn't mean that you uh, were not a Christian to begin with. But it does mean that our journey is stalled. Because we are not walking by the Spirit. We are walking by the flesh. We are gratifying the desires of the flesh. But when you experience this conflict, when, when you experience this inner fight, and when I said that, it just made sense to you. That is a sign that the Spirit does indeed indwell you. So if following Jesus seems hard, that's because that's just the way it is. Okay? I remember in, in high school, whenever I, I, was, uh, I visited the high school varsity team for the first time, I was a freshman. It was over the summer before my freshman year. And I wanted nothing more to make the varsity team and play with these guys. And I watched them practice once. I had never seen a more intense, aggressive, physical basketball practice in my entire life. And as soon as I saw it, I was like, I want that. And when I got in it, 
I felt like I had missed out if I didn't have a bruise, if I wasn't sweating, if, if you know, I, I didn't have to go over and get water every five minutes, if it wasn't hard. Because that's what basketball at this particular school meant. It meant you were in. You were a part of it. The Christian life is a struggle. It's a conflict. It's a war. So if you're feeling that, that means you're in. You're in. You're a part of this. It's just the way that it is. But in light of this conflict, Paul gives a very simple and central command. So finally, let's consider the command in verse 16. This glorious and simple command. He says, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. What does he mean? Well, when we first heard and believed the gospel promise that the God we opposed had come down to us, had come down for us, we experienced a double blessing, we could say. At the moment of faith, we received both Christ and the Spirit, both grace and power, both forgiveness from God and the experience of the life of God himself. When, when we received the Holy Spirit at our conversion, we were invited into the very life and heart of God himself. In Christ, we receive this once-for-all atonement for our sins. And in the Spirit, we receive this endless source of power to live the new life of freedom and light and love. The way to become like Christ is to walk. Is to walk. The Spirit leads. We, we keep in step. With the Spirit, Avery will consider in a few weeks. We walk. Walking by the Spirit means that day by day, moment by moment, step by step, in this conflict that exists within our hearts, where we are tugged and pulled in all kinds of different directions by our desires that are at war with one another. Weak and weary sinners like us can draw on the power of the Holy Spirit to become what we are not by nature. Walking by the Spirit means relying on the Spirit, choosing what the Spirit loves, while resisting what grieves the Spirit. Walking by the Spirit, though, does not mean that we will not stumble on the way. That's, that's why I'm, I'm kind of glad it says we walk by the Spirit, we don't sprint by the Spirit. When we stumble, and we will, we dust ourselves off, and we just keep walking. The Spirit who indwells us and begins to lead us at conversion, He's not going to stop when we fall. He's not going to stop leading us when we fail. And since the Spirit and the flesh are at odds with one another, when you walk by the Spirit, it is impossible for you to gratify the desires of the flesh. There's a great promise here in verse 16. I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Paul's basically saying that a whole lot of bad stuff is not going to happen, is not going to happen if we're walking by the Spirit. So although it's an imperfect experience, we experience heaven on earth when we walk by the Spirit. This is our new life in Christ. 
So you want to see transformed relationships in our midst? I'd love to give you a 10-step plan. I'd love to. But it won't help. It, it won't ultimately help, not without walking by the Spirit. You want to see the gospel advance in our city? Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Now, as we walk by the Spirit, what is the Spirit doing? I just want to look at two examples from Galatians itself. So in two places, the Spirit is, re- or a few places the Spirit is referenced. I want to bring up two of them. First, in Galatians 4. Galatians 4, 6. Paul writes, Because you were sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, the Spirit assures us that God really is our Father and that we really are his beloved children. The, the Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts about God, our Father's heart. So later this week, later this month, when you are tempted to think, God could never love me. He could never love me. Look what I just did. There's, there's no chance. And you consider how much you fail to, to love one another, to serve one another. And you think that God just despises you right now. The Spirit testifies to our hearts, assures us in our hearts in such a way that we are able to say to ourselves, you know what? All of that is true. All of that is true. I am messed up. I failed. That is terrible. And God hates it. And yet, God adopts sinners. He is my Father. And there is nothing that I can do to change that reality. So, When the Spirit gives us this assurance, what do we do? We keep walking. Another example from earlier in Galatians 5, Galatians 5, 5. Through the Spirit, by faith, we eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. The Spirit keeps this hope alive in our hearts. So when we're tempted to call it quits and despair is ever present in our minds and in our hearts, and we see that there is so much wrong within us, there is so much wrong In the world, we feel breathless, we feel hopeless, and then there's the Spirit. The Spirit is present in our hearts, breathing life and breathing hope into us so that we can continue to long even as we lament. And then we keep walking. See, in all these moments of weakness, we'll be tempted to grant the flesh a foothold. And Paul says, you'll be tempted to think that because you are free in Christ that you're, it's, it's permissible for you, for you to live however you want. But the flesh is nothing more than a coping mechanism for life in a world without God. And, and we have been called to freedom. So when the flesh rises in times of guilt and despair and stumbling, we take another step. We keep walking. We walk by the Spirit and we say, I feel like giving in. This is too hard for me. I can't do it. But Holy Spirit, it is not too hard for you. So I give myself to you. I submit to you. And when we submit to the desires of the Spirit, we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. We keep walking. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Screwtape Letters, we had a group here at church uh, last, last year that walked through it. 
he, he writes of this senior devil who's giving advice to a junior devil who, you know, they're, they're out tempting Christians and other tormenting people in the world. And so he's just giving him advice. At one point, he writes this. Do not be deceived, Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger. So the cause of the demons and, and Satan. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do God's will, looks around on a universe from which every trace of God seems to have vanished. And he asks, why has he forsaken? And then he still obeys. Nothing does more damage to the flesh, to the devil, than those of us who are beat down, who are weak, who are weary, who are lost and confused. And we still say, even when we don't desire it, I'm going to walk by the Spirit. And we keep taking steps. We've been called to freedom. So church, let's use our freedom. Let's not use our freedom as an opportunity to return to the ways of our sinful nature, but let's use our freedom to love and serve one another with persistence and with perseverance. Let's use our freedom to resist the flesh and to submit to the Spirit. Let's walk by the Spirit and let's walk in step together as we follow his lead. And let's see what he can accomplish in us and through us. Let me pray.